Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Ellen Keith is originally from St. Albert, Canada, and currently lives in Amsterdam, where she joins me from today. She's the author of the best-selling novel, The Dutch Wife, which won the 2016 HarperCollins Publishers LTD UBC Prize for Best New Fiction. Her latest, The Dutch Orphan, came out this past April. Both novels are set in the Netherlands during World War II. They certainly can be read independently, but if they're read together, you'll get a little pleasure from their crossover characters and storylines. We're going to talk about all that, as well as finding new territory in an often written about topic in literature. We'll chat about multi-perspective novels and choosing the appropriate point of view for characters, researching historical fiction and how much history to impart on your readers, as well as making your way in the publishing world today as a new writer, finding agents, publishing your work, writing that difficult second novel in the aftermath of huge success, marketing, and all that businessy stuff of writing. Before I bring her on, I wanted to give a special shout out to our July patrons. Lodi McClellan, Ann Moose, Aaron, Don Bonker, Thomas Quails, Jan Menino, Kelly Gates, Dina Andre, Dan Conway. We appreciate your support. We appreciate all the support that our patrons have given us over the past year or so. You can find out more about our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. Those people who join get special perks. We give out weekly writing tips now provided by the guests of the show every now and then and uh, writing tips every now and then provided by guests of the show. There's some other stuff up there so you can see all the benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing on with the show. Ellen Keith, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So I have read, you know, a fair number of World War II novels. I mean, not not as many as are out there, but you took me into completely new and unexplored territory. And that was really fun. So I'm very excited to talk about how you found this new way into a well-talked about topic in literature. But I thought before we did that, because they're not entirely companion novels, but they tread in the same territory, I thought I'd let you introduce both novels to us and take us into the world of both of the novels, and then we can kind of jump off from there. So both of these novels are set in the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. The first novel, The Dutch Wife, revolves around a character, Marijke de Graaf, And she's a woman in the Dutch resistance who, together with her husband, they're arrested and sent to separate concentration camps in Germany. Once she's there in this camp, she's given the opportunity to be rerouted to the camp where her husband is at, but only if she volunteers to join the camp brothel. Um, And from there, this story goes into some quite dark, heavy territory, uh, looking at prostitution in the concentration camps, something that's not very well known, the fact that there were brothels set up, not just for the camp commanders, the staff, but also for the prisoners as a sort of reward system to incentivize them to work harder. So that's what the first novel is about. And the second novel is a sort of companion novel. And there's something that happens in the first chapter of The Dutch Wife, that's sort of the jumping off point for the second novel, The Dutch Orphan. And the Dutch orphan focuses more on what was going on within the Netherlands rather than in the concentration camps. And it's a story that really revolves around two sisters. Uh, One, Johanna, is in the Dutch resistance and she ends up taking in a Jewish baby and trying to shelter it by passing it off as her own. Her sister, in turn, is married to a Dutch man who is collaborating with the Germans. So with the second novel, I really wanted to explore what was going on while the Nazis were occupying the Netherlands and how that really affected daily life for people. And especially looking at the sort of range of reactions that we see from people from on the one end, really taking a stand and resisting, and then on the other end, collaborating and maybe for for personal or for business benefit. And then somewhere in the middle, this 
kind of what the majority of people were, were doing, which was really just kind of keep their heads down and some sort of almost a perceived indifference to what was going on. But really, this was just a sort of survival mechanism. As you said, the two, two novels can be read separately, but there is some overlap in the characters. Yeah, it's so interesting to me to talk about the world. I always term it as the world books are born into. And I think these novels have such a different feel to them in the last five years, six years, than they would have even 10 or 15 years ago when we thought, or I thought naively, that we were a bit post-World War II. We had learned some lessons the hard way. We weren't going to repeat these things. And as we're living through it now and books like this come out, I read it with a much different ear than I did 10 years ago. And I imagine some of that had to have been swirling around in your brain as you were writing these. Absolutely. I think that's really the benefit of historical fiction. And in some ways, the reason why World War II fiction continues to be so popular today is because it really does hold a mirror to the present. And I think the whole idea of it is to really force us as readers to think about what's going on in our contemporary world and to really look at some of the lessons that we can pull out of these stories. I, I mean, ultimately, all these stories, no matter what time period you're writing about, they expose something about the human experience. They expose something about our tendencies, our instincts, and how we react to conflict. And those types of lessons are still very applicable today. Let's spin back on The Dutch Wife to the origins of that novel for you. And when you first started writing about that, I don't know what year, what year did you begin that novel? I started that novel. So that novel was actually my thesis for my Master of Fine Arts program at the University of British Columbia. And I started it in 2014. And then I think I spent a year writing the first draft and then probably a year and a half or two years after that, revising. It came out in 2018. So there was then sort of, you know, the whole publication process that comes into play as well. And the world during those years was really shifting beneath our feet. I mean, that really is really sort of the rise of anti-Semitism again in the United States, sort of during the, the latter half of your kind of during, well, I'm trying to think now how the world went. So maybe it was even af actually in the aftermath of when your book came out, anti-Semitism really started rising, at least in the U.S. I don't know if, if that was true as well in Canada and the Netherlands. But when the book came out, it was a much more heightened conversation. So when you started it, was it based on this research that you had discovered about the brothels? Or tell me kind of the jumping off point for you of sparking your interest in the novel. It's actually, to me, really interesting how much uh, a novel can evolve from the, uh, the moment that you have this starting point idea to the finished product. And I think this is a good example of that. I actually started out with an idea for a short story, and it was about a tango dancer in Argentina with a dark past. Then from there, I kind of went on and I thought, all right, what, what could I do with that character? I think a lot of people know there are a lot of former Nazis that ended up in Argentina and Paraguay and Brazil after the war. I started thinking about that idea of what was the mentality like for someone who was somewhere in the middle to middle ranks or low ranks of Nazi hierarchy. And how did they end up living out the rest of their life? Were they someone, you know, who at this point I had just moved to the Netherlands and going camping in Germany and, and seeing all these, these elderly people on the campgrounds and I'm thinking they have such a different lived experience of the war than my own grandparents who were living in during the occupation of the Netherlands. And so I started trying to think, what does that look like going on and living the rest of your life? And what kind of stories do you tell yourself about your role in the, in the war? And so from there, I decided to focus a story more on this character of an SS officer in Germany in a concentration camp. And I really wanted to get inside his head. But I knew that this is the type of character who is probably an unreliable narrator. And that posed some tricky problems in terms of how to really show him as a character while he's maybe not being honest with himself. 
And I thought the best way to do that was to show his story and his perspective next to two other voices that could act as sort of the counterbalance, a voice of reason to whatever he's telling himself. And of course, when without giving away too much of the story, I was trying to think of what type of people would allow that intimate access into this character's head. And I ended up with two different characters, one of which was Marika. And I thought, obviously, an easy way to give access into a man's more vulnerable side is to bring in someone in some sort of romantic tension. And it was only then that I stumbled across this information about the brothels. I was looking for information on brothels for the SS officers. And instead, I came across research about these brothels for the prisoners. And that ended up sort of hijacking the story and taking it in a completely different direction because it was just so fascinating to me that in the end, Marika's story was the one that really came to life and took center stage. So I ended up changing the whole narrative to make her voice in first person rather than in third person. And, and the other two characters were then in third person. So she takes center stage and it really becomes more a story about her. And that's something that you then see reflected in the title of the novel that we ultimately went with. That is so funny. I love hearing that evolution, especially from short story to novel and then these three different points of view. Yeah, we should mention, and and I don't know if we did in the introduction of The Dutch Wife, that there is this third narrative that takes place in 1970s Argentina with a man that, yeah, without giving too much away, that, that kind of reverberates throughout the story as well. And I love this third person. So, so three points of view in that book. And this play between first person and third person, two men and a woman. And tell me a little bit about that first person choice, what that gave you and what the third person choices gave you. Because there's such trade-off, I think, in working in those different points of view that it gives you access and intimacy and a locking in of the head in first person. And this, as you're talking about this unreliable narrator third person feels just right for that. So tell me a little bit more about those first person, third person choices. Well, that was actually a really big learning process for me and something that came into play in both novels. There were shifts in both novels in terms of which point of view I was using. And when I'm working with writing students on their novels, one thing I really stress is to give a lot of thought to the perspective that you're choosing, the narrative voice. So in terms of the tense you're using and in terms of who is narrating this, how close of a third person narrator are you using? Are you going for a first person narrator? Because that's really going to both affect and be affected by the story you're trying to tell. Initially with The Dutch Wife, I actually had all three voices in first person. And they were all in first-person present tense in the first mm, draft. Mm, mm. Uh, I found that, uh, first of all, the first-person present tense felt a bit too stiff, and it just felt a little forced. But the other issue I was running into was, well, the stories all had equal weight. And ultimately, when I began working with my editor, we said, you know, we really feel that Marika's story needs to come to the forefront. And the easiest way to do that was to switch the two male perspectives to third person. So as soon as you have a first person voice, that's really who we're most likely to connect with on an emotional level uh, if we're reading multiple points of view. So that as a craft trick just automatically helped strengthen that bond with that character. But the other thing is when writing a historical novel, you have a lot of background and context that you need to work in, the research. And one thing I really encountered in some of the feedback that I was getting on early drafts was that it was feeling a little bit forced. And I think that's something that we see all too often in historical novels that we can sense that the author is a little too excited about their research and they sort of dump too much of it into the story in a way that doesn't feel organic to the story that's being told. And one trick to help alleviate that a little bit is to move to a third person or a more distant narrator, because it doesn't make sense that if you're really in that character's head, that they're going to be thinking about the battles that are going on in France or something like that all the time. But as soon as you introduce a little more distance to that narrative voice, you can get away with that more. 
So then it was for me a bit of a strategic shift also because I had more room in the male perspective storylines to add in some of that research that I felt that I couldn't get away with adding in in the first person. And then with the second novel, The Dutch Orphan, I had a similar situation where I had these two sisters and it was really important for me to show, as I said earlier, the range of ways that people reacted to the occupation. So I didn't want to just focus on the story of the resistance hero. And I wanted to get into both sisters' heads. At the same time, one story is probably more compelling because it has more action and because we have more of that fighting element. So again, once I'd written a full draft, we decided to make the one sister, in this case, I moved from two third person narratives to move Johannes into first person. And the other thing I really noticed is suddenly her story came so much more alive. Her voice just really took off in a way that it wasn't when I had them both in third person. Yeah, that first person point of view gives you such emotional access that is a little bit difficult to achieve in third person. And I think that's interesting from the male point of view to be in third person because this is a total overgeneralization, but but that feels true to who and how these men were, which is just a little bit more emotionally removed from their own situation, right? They, I mean, especially the SS officer really had to kind of lie to himself, as you say, and distance himself from himself, which was also true in the Dutch orphan with um, Lisbeth. She also had to engage in a lot of mental acrobatics to get herself through the tricky situation that she found herself in. And third person really lends itself to that sort of lying to yourself. She went by the moniker nickname Lees, which on the page read as lies, which was an interesting (laughs) choice because in certain ways she would, you know, that's kind of what she was doing to herself throughout the book. But to your point, I thought third person worked worked really well for both of those characters. Tell me a little bit about now in The Dutch Wife writing from the male point of view, because that also requires just a very different voice, a very different stance, and how you felt in that perspective versus the female point of view. I think that was really difficult for me on both sides, actually. Um, Of course, writing a female character was more natural for me because I think I can get into that mindset more easily. At the same time, there was a really fine balance between uh, how much emotion am I bringing in and looking at the really horrible situation I put my characters in, how do I find that balance? And with the male character, as you just mentioned, there was this idea of the lies that he's telling himself, and it creates an emotional barrier already. So there's this sense of that character being more reserved. And I had to struggle a little bit between how much am I letting the readers into his emotions? How much is he letting himself into his emotions? One thing I really struggled with was how to justify his behaviors as an SS officer while also making him him human. And someone who was giving me some feedback on my manuscript at one point said to me, you know, you're maybe overthinking it. You can show the human side of someone in the simplest of actions, such as having him take a bath at the end of a difficult night. And just that moment of trying to escape and just be with yourself, that in itself is a very human thing. And you don't necessarily need to pour all this emotion onto the page, but just show us this character doing things where there's a natural vulnerability to it. Uh, So for me, I tried to find a few points in this character's world. What are the things that really anchors him. And for me, those things were, he he really cared, he was really interested in nature and biology. So that was something that I tried to focus on as just a small way to humanize him and for him to channel his emotions when he wasn't really able to bring them to words. And um, there was one scene that I wrote also where he's interacting with a young male prisoner um, in a sculptor's studio. And that also, for me, was a way to bring in this idea of birds and and nature and biology again, in a way that really forced this character, I think, to confront difficult emotions that he wasn't ready to process and to handle. And that's something that I tried to bring back throughout the story, 
and then again make a connection with the the other storyline that's coming in with this story of the sculptor so it was all about finding roundabout ways i think to give access to this character's emotional state and it's really good i think to ask yourself if you have a character like that who's being emotionally closed off what are the small things that give them joy or what are the small moments where we see that human vulnerability coming through i love that advice and the other thing that you gave him was a compelling backstory about his father and we came to understand the emotional complexity of how he got to where he got and doesn't it always come back to our parents right of how <laughs> how we come to be who we are but his backstory with his father and the pressure that was put on him really shone light on on how he got to where he was I think that's actually something really interesting to touch on is the question of how much backstory do you bring into a story and with his character Carl I I struggled with that a lot and I think the backstory that you're referring to about the father is something that actually came in in some of the later drafts right towards the end of the process my editor asking you know do I really understand this man well enough how did he get to this place and I was starting to get to know my characters much better at that point and see the sort of reverberations through their lives of things that were happening both in the context of the story what was playing out on page and the broader story that was playing out in my mind. And one thing that yeah you're probably not aware of is when I wrote this novel I was way too ambitious with what I thought I could throw into a novel as it said it's my first novel The Dutch Wife and i actually had not just three characters but i had uh five timelines that i was working oh. with so <laughs> oh. i had both marika and carl they have in the book their stories playing out in the 1940s but in the original draft i also had a storyline for each of them in the 1970s that the uh. same time as luciano this other male character his storyline was playing out and that for me was because when i originally came up with the idea of the story i was thinking so much about how did these people go on and continue to live the rest of their life and what stories are they telling themselves about what they did during the war to get by so that for me was so much of the starting point for this story that i i really wanted to show this idea of yeah trauma that you're bringing on uh, through the decades generational trauma what else is going on So I really overloaded the novel with these extra storylines and ended up between draft 1 and draft 2 cutting out 40% of the novel. Mm. So I I cut out, you know, well maybe 150 pages or something like that. Mm. But what it left me with was a lot of backstory on both ends of the characters' lives, so before the novel takes place and after. and then is a question for yourself as you are writing those later drafts of what do i pull and what actually deserves to be in the novel and i think so often when we're writing early drafts we fill our novels with too much backstory and it's really critical to ask yourself what deserves to be in the story what's triggering it in this moment what's causing that character to reflect on something from their past and what is this going to add to the character development or reveal about the core emotional heart of the story i'm trying to tell as you're saying that though it occurs to me how much vestiges of all of that work that you did are still subtly in the book i mean i'm thinking like you know a painter where you can just see the faint pencil marks underneath the canvas of what they painted over it gives that richness and texture to the painting that wouldn't be there if you hadn't done all of that work so even though all those pages got cut the fact that you wrote them means that you knew all of this information about these characters that you know probably still leached into the storyline just through the amount of work that you did no amount of I work is ever lost right <laughs> yeah and i think that was one of the biggest lessons that i learned in writing the first novel is the first bit of feedback i got from my thesis supervisor was you're trying to write four novels in one and it was really scary for me at the time to say all right i'm going to trust this one person's feedback and cut 40% of what i've done in over the last year and there was a lot of trust involved in that yeah and looking back i completely understand why she said that and she was totally right 
but it is that exactly what you say nothing is ever lost and you need to trust that you know even if you write chapters that don't belong ultimately in the story on some level or another they are enriching the story that you're trying to tell even if it's not making it onto the page absolutely did you take that lesson with you then into the Dutch orphan and approach the structure and writing of that novel totally different? Yeah, it was a very different process for me. Um, first of all, I found the idea of approaching a second novel to be very intimidating. And I also was writing to a deadline with a publisher, which was a very different experience than the first one where I had no idea if I'd ever get the novel published. I was really just writing the first novel for me. And you know, I, I went into such dark, heavy territory that I probably would have never dared to go into if I'd known at the outset that there was going to be a readership waiting there at the <laughs> end for me. So sometimes I look back and I think, what was I thinking? I don't know if I would have the guts to go that dark right now. But in that way, it was also very liberating. And with the second novel, I really went in knowing that I was writing for a readership and writing to a deadline. And so I also needed to be, I'm a very, very slow writer. So I needed to be very strategic about how I was approaching it. So I put a lot more thought into the outline before I started writing. I think I wrote 30 pages of The Dutch Orphan, got into it and thought, this is already falling flat. And I thought part of it was restrictions of the historical timeline. The the occupation in the Netherlands started off much more slowly and the consequences were more gradual than you might see in countries like Poland, for example, where things got very bad very quickly. So that already caused a lot of pacing problems for me to solve. Uh, but the other thing I realized 30 pages in was I just don't understand my characters well enough. And I need to really go back and do the groundwork and getting to know them and really think about what's motivating them, what are their flaws, what's holding them back before I can figure out where my story is going. So I really did go back and I spent another two months or something reworking the outline with a special focus on getting to know the characters on a deeper level. And that really helped me, I think, but it was such a different approach than, than the first novel. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're saying that, I think that's another trick into avoiding the, I can't remember how you phrased it earlier in the interview, but like the the information dump that you give your readers because of all the great research that you've done. If you approach this from character first, as opposed to research first, a lot of those, you know, kind of didactic, here's what I learned from reading a history book, things kind of fall away because it's all about what's motivating your character and you know, how they're going to react into in the situation and scene that they're in and not not a history lesson. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit because you did such a great job with a tricky subject because your reader knows or, you know, the average reader knows a fair amount about World War II, but maybe, you know, obviously information is going to differ based on the reader. So you have to impart a certain amount of information, but you don't want to tell people too much of what they already know. And again, it always has to be from the character's perspective and point of view, which in the Netherlands is very different than some of the points of view that we've gotten from other literature about World War II. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you chose what information, historical information, to impart to the reader when it got too much or too little and kind of what feedback you got from your editor on on that point. Yeah, so... I think one thing that I've learned is to not do all your research up front, because if you're writing historical fiction, you're probably someone who's fascinated by the history and you can just go down the rabbit hole and be lost in it forever. And that's how you end up overloading your story with research as well, because you think, oh, I've got to use this. So that's, I think, a starting point. Make sure that you have your your bases covered and from there, make a list of the things that you need to look into further in order to write the scenes that you need to write. Also, it's really important to go back after and really critically look at what you've put in. Assume that you've probably in your first draft 
dumped a lot more in than needs to go in there. Go back with a special eye for the research in one of your revision passes and ask yourself, is this coming in because I'm using a close third person or a first person? I ask myself, is this coming in sounding like the author or is this coming in sounding like I'm somewhat channeling it through the character's point of view? Can I rephrase some of this? Can I strip some of this? I try to do when I've first done my major revision, I try to then do a pass the novel where I strip down 10% of the word count. And a lot of that is just from excess wordiness. But research that doesn't need to be in there is another really easy way to cut. And there's so much that you can get rid of. That's something as well that my editor was really paying attention to. She found quite a few passages of exposition and she said, you know, this adds context, but it's more of a broader European context. We don't necessarily need that in the story. And as you said, I think people that are reading this genre read widely in this genre. So most of them have quite a bit of knowledge already. But for me, the Dutch context was a little bit trickier. And I think especially the way that it developed, that the, the circumstances, for example, for the Jewish community in the Netherlands developed was very different than in other countries. And that was challenging to find the balance between scenes with quick pacing and a lot of drama, but also showing the, the way that things gradually built up and gradually got worse and how that then affected the mindset of the people living in the Netherlands, because it wasn't all at once. It wasn't one big thunderclap, and suddenly their world was absolutely, completely horribly different. But there were things that were building up over time, one ordinance after another, and people's rights were being taken away. And suddenly you get to a point and you think, how did it get this bad? So that was a challenge to show. And I think the the biggest thing you can do is just really go back and ask yourself critically about every piece of exposition. Does this need to be in here? And is there a way to show it that is more embedded in my character's thoughts and their natural way of viewing the world? We'll be right back with more from Ellen Keith and the Dutch wife and the Dutch orphan in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're enjoying the show, if you've enjoyed these behind the scenes discussions of how these books get made, this is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out and lets us keep doing what we're doing. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Ellen Keith talking about the Dutch wife and the Dutch orphan. Was there ever a point in the writing, because it sounds like the Dutch wife, you came at World War II really through the the back door after I now understand that it came through the Argentinian front door. Was there ever a point when you said, oh God, I'm writing a World War II novel? I only bring that up because I have a friend who was, she was writing a novel and she got the feedback. There's so many polio novels. And I was like, are there? Are there any polio novels? (laughs) But it occurred to me when you're writing about World War II, it would be, at least in my mind, it would feel like a massive amount of pressure of, oh my God, now I'm writing a World War II novel. And I don't know if that ever kind of got into your psyche of, you know, now I have to make it really very different than every other World War II novel. Was that a challenge or a a thought for you? Because you certainly did. You certainly achieved it. And I was wondering if if that was something you had to kind of overcome. Yes, 100%. And I can imagine that if I were starting out with The Dutch Wife today as my first novel, I would be completely panicked about it because the market is even more saturated with World War II novels now than it was in you know, 2014 when I started this. So it was absolutely a concern for me. I really sat there and thought, but there are already so many World War II stories out there. And that's where it comes back to the point that I was saying earlier about how liberating it was to be writing without any sense of whether or not the story would be published. Because ultimately, I asked myself, what are the stories that I'm interested in reading? And can I write something that I myself would really enjoy reading? And I had done my undergrad in history with a focus on World War II and Holocaust studies. So that was already 
where my research interest lay. And I knew that it was either I go an academic route and I teach World War II history, or I find a way to work it into my writing. But that did then bring the other question of, is there still an audience for this? Or am I the only one who's really that interested in it? But I think for me, what on the academic level had always captured my interest was this idea of collective memory and how do we look back on things that we've done either as a society or as a, a group of individuals and how do we justify that to ourselves? What kind of narratives are we building around it? And so that was what I wanted to explore with that story. And that also led me to looking at what are some stories that haven't gotten the same kind of exposure that we're used to yet. So I think that was helpful that I I knew exactly what it was within World War II that interested me rather than just setting out and saying, I'm going to write a World War II story. I think mentally that was much more of a block for me with the Dutch orphan when I returned to the same subject matter. Mm. And you were able to mine your own family stories and mine the place where you're now living. It sounds like a lot of this book, to, or I'm sorry, a lot of the Dutch orphan took place really in and around your neighborhood. Yes, that was for me really fun to write because I was writing during lockdown. Uh, I didn't have the same kind of research opportunities and travel opportunities I had when writing The Dutch Wife. But I was able to just go out for walks, go out for bike rides and look around my neighborhood at what I could integrate into the story. And there's also so much of my grandmother's experiences of war in The Dutch Orphan as well. There's this story of the brother character, Gerrit, um, and they live in a more rural setting. That and everything that happens to that character is my grandmother's brother. I want to talk about writing difficult scenes. And as you mentioned, the Dutch wife is um, a little bit darker, pretty pretty darker, <laughs> pretty much darker than the Dutch orphan. However, there is a pretty dark scene in the Dutch orphan as well. And so you do this so adeptly. And I want to talk about writing sex and writing torture and writing difficult scenes because it's hard. I mean, you don't want to turn your reader completely off where they can't take it. You want to be accurate to the situation that was happening you want to show what that situation is doing to the character and not be sort of gratuitous. So tell me a little bit about approaching those scenes, which scenes were the most difficult to write, how you calibrated that tightrope of going too far and going far enough and all of those issues. Yeah, that is such a good question. It is really hard. And I think every writer will have a slightly different position on this. For me, I, as I said, I had done so much academic work in World War II history already that I think I have maybe a higher tolerance for engaging with some of that difficult material than a lot other, of other people might have. So I think that helped me in being able to write it a little bit without being emotionally overwhelmed uh, because I just had done so much work in this field already. But it's still really difficult. And the question of when does it become gratuitous, all readers are going to have a different tolerance level for this as well in terms of what types of stories they want to engage with. Some people want to read World War II, but they want a little bit of a fluffier, you know, black and white story of heroism. And other people are not going to shy away from really dark materials. So there's going to be some people that read this and say, there was, you know, the sex felt gratuitous or something. But for me, I kept coming back to the question of where do I, what do I feel is most important here? And that was honoring the difficult experiences and the trauma that these people went through and not trying to sugarcoat it to make it more palatable for a reader. So the hardest scenes to write were the ones from the boy's perspective, Luciano, he, the university student in Argentina who is imprisoned. Every single Bit of the imprisonment detail in terms of the horrible experiences, the torture he undergoes, every little piece of that was taken from a witness testimony in, in the court trials that happened later. There was nothing I made up. So to me, if, if you know, some people maybe find that really hard to read, I think I wanted to be loyal to the experience of these people 
who were imprisoned, who were becoming the so-called disappeared. And I thought then that it was really important to, to confront that front on. And likewise, you know, with the broth brothel scenes, I thought I don't need to go into pages and pages of, of graphic sex, but I'm not going to write a character who's forced into prostitution and not show her in that mindset and, and show her coping mechanism of how she tries to get through that experience. So it really was a balancing act. Um, but I think for me, it came back to what is the heart of the story I'm trying to tell? And what do I think is the most important in telling the stories that are based not on real individuals, but on real experiences that people went through? I was thinking about this in the context of, I was just reading A Little Life eight years after everybody else has read A Little Life. And, you know, there's there's similarly, there's a lot of torture, abuse, sexual abuse scenes. And I was thinking of these two novels in the context of that. And I think one of the tricks also is really focusing on what those experiences do to your character. It's more important. It's important for the audience to understand what is happening, of course. And, but then it's also important what those, what the impact of what they're going through is doing on their own psyche. And this did that well as well, where, you know, we could see Luciano back in his cell contemplating how this was changing him and, and the impact that it was having on him. That was also a good way to approach it, to understand what it, what it's doing to the character, which takes it out of the realm of gratuitousness, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When I ask myself, do I need a sex scene in the novel? The first thing I'm asking myself is, in what way is it building characterization? You don't put a sex scene in a novel or in a movie unless it's revealing something about the character. It's not just sex for the sake of having sex. It's about what can I show about this person's vulnerabilities, their weakness, their coping mechanisms, their attachment style. How is this adding to the psychology of the character? And the same thing with the torture. You know, everyone has different ways of dealing with really euphoric moments and really horrible moments. And I think that's why we include difficult scenes, not just you know, to throw heavy content in front of a reader, but to really show how people behave in really difficult situations or really wonderful situations. Right. Were there any points in The Dutch Orphan where we always talk about middles and the, the sagginess of middles? And this didn't have any of that, I think, partly because you have shifting points of view so that we're always engaged in some sort of action. But were there any points where you got stuck in the Dutch orphan or in the Dutch wife. I mean, the Dutch wife sounds like it had its own set of problems of being kind of dismantled. But tell me about getting unstuck if you find yourself stuck. Yeah, the Dutch orphan was tricky because as I said before, the first couple of years of the occupation were slow compared to what happened from 1943 onward. And I wanted to show that buildup, but it did create pacing problems. At one point, we looked at the manuscript when I was working with my editor and said, shall we, I divided it into five parts and I thought, shall we switch parts one and two so that we actually start out in 1943 when there's more drama and more things going on and then we jump back in time. So we tried to do that a little bit to play with the pacing. It didn't really work. We switched it back. What I found really did end up helping me, and this is, goes to what you're saying about the switching points of view, is paying a lot of attention to my chapter length. Some of the chapters are longer, moving into maybe 4,000 words, but for the most part, I tried to keep them short. And I think when you're balancing multiple POVs, the really important thing is to make sure that there's also some balance in the amount of conflict in the narrative, whatever point you're at in the story. So if I had one character, where things were getting really tough and there was maybe a lot of internal conflict, a lot of drama going on. I needed that to be mirrored in some way in the other storyline as well. Otherwise, you're going to have a reader who just wants to skip ahead to the next chapter from, from the story that's feeling more interesting. So it really was a question of what can I move around to try to line things up in a way that keeps that balance, that we don't feel the need to skip ahead 
And that was really tricky because when you're working with historical timelines and dual points of view, you're always also having to balance the order of events based on the historical timeline. So it did require a lot of shifting around, playing with, okay, could I end this chapter one scene earlier? Is that a better moment to break, to keep the tension high? And how will that affect the timeline I'm trying to work with? But I think it is important to also just look at your chapters as contained stories as well and ask yourself, am I building to some sort of natural mini turning point within the chapter? And that will also help a little bit with confronting that saggy middle. Do you have a big timeline hanging up in your office or do you use Scrivener or how do you kind of keep track of all of this? I use Miro, which is uh, Dino Miro. I don't know. It is sort of more in the corporate world, a tool that's used for collaborative brainstorming. Oh. And you can play around with all these different templates. And it's almost like you have these virtual sticky notes, post-it notes that you can move all over the place, play around with different boards. I use that a lot for my initial brainstorming, especially my character development. Okay. And then at a certain point, I move over from, yeah, I have a, a Word document as well. That's sort of my overarching synopsis. But then I move everything everything on the more specific level over to an Excel spreadsheet. And that for me is a really critical tool in terms of keeping the narrative timeline in balance with the historical timeline. So another thing, going back to the idea of integrating research that you had touched on before, I have a column in this Excel spreadsheet where I can keep track of any important background information in the broader historical context that's going on at a certain time in the novel. And then when I get to that scene that I'm writing, I think, okay, 1942, suddenly there's this turning point in the war. So that's going to affect the characters' lives in this way. Let me make sure I add that in. And it's just useful for me to keep track of that at the same time, to make sure that I am always situating things in the broader context without having to go in later and really surgically insert the research in a way that feels heavy-handed. I love that. And then do you have like a similar timeline for the characters so that Joe isn't pregnant for 18 months or? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a, this sort of formula worked into the Excel sheet to tell me how old my characters are at every major plot point that I want. Yeah. And I had so much playing around with the pregnancy. And at what month is she starting to show symptoms? How is that going to affect her mobility in certain scenes? That was a nightmare, I, especially when working with the, the dual timelines and the link to the Dutch wife and what happens in that first chapter of the Dutch wife, that was the jumping off point for for the second novel, that limited me in so many ways because I couldn't play with the timeline as much as I would have liked to. Right. You were locked in. Yeah. We kind of ran out of time to talk about the the nice conversation between the two novels that takes place, which I assume as you were writing The Dutch Wife, you weren't anticipating a second book of The Dutch Orphan, but you still got all the pleasures of seeing a little bit of replay of characters. That was fun. Getting kind of to the publishing agency side of this, tell me first a little bit about initially finding your agent, selling the book, selling The Dutch Wife, and kind of how all that came about, and if there are lessons that listeners can draw from your experience. I'm afraid I have a very unconventional story when it comes to my publishing journey, and I always wish I had more concrete tips in the way of concrete tips to give people who are in the querying process right now. As I said before, the Dutch Wife started off as my thesis for an MFA program. And the manuscript ended up winning a prize through a contest that was put on with a university, University of British Columbia, mm. in conjunction with HarperCollins Canada. And I entered that contest with my manuscript and it ended up winning. And the prize was both agent representation and a publishing deal with HarperCollins at the same time. So I ended up skipping the whole querying process and the whole submissions process and 
landed a publishing deal right away. In that sense, I don't have that much to offer, except I think really patience and perseverance. I, out of fellow students who were in the program with me at the same time, I've seen so much hard work go in and so many frustrating moments in the querying process with manuscripts that I know are really, really good and really deserving to be out in the world. But everyone who has really stuck with it and not given up has made progress and has now found an agent or had a book out. So I think really just having faith in the story you're trying to tell and really sticking with it is important. Do you feel now that you have these two books out, and maybe this is totally fine with you, but do you feel a pressure from either your agent or the publishing industry to stay in this realm of either historical fiction, World War II fiction? Do you feel sort of pegged into that now, or do you feel a freedom to explore whatever you would wish in the future? That's a tricky question and one I've been grappling with a lot. I think it's an ongoing discussion with all writers that I know that are that are publishing right now is to what extent are you building a brand and certain reader expectations? And of course, I know that people probably expect me to write another World War II novel after this. I am really hoping to branch out. I will stick within historical fiction for my next novel, but I'm working on two proposals right now, both of which are in different time periods. I think one is very in line with the type of story that readers might expect from me in terms of the type of themes that I tackle. Uh, I really like exploring that moral gray area and sort of political conflict and how that's affecting female characters. Mm. And the other one is totally different and maybe too out there, too genre bending. Mm. We'll see how that comes across. But for me, I thought this is now the novel where I really want to play a little more, experiment, and see what else I'm capable of. Tell me a little bit about, because I feel like the publishing world has changed and is under our feet changing so much, even as we sit here talking, it's changing a lot. So tell me a little bit about the expectations of marketing on you, how much work you have to do in the world to market your books and any advice you give once you have books out to keep them alive and and keep appearing in bookstores and podcasts and all that sort of thing. Is that pressure on you or is that still on HarperCollins? I think it depends so much what kind of publisher you're with. Uh, because I'm with HarperCollins, they have a big marketing team. They have budgets allocated for this kind of thing. So that takes off quite a bit of the pressure. I think there is the understanding that I'm not expected to do that much, but it is in my benefit. And we all know how difficult it is to make a living as a writer or to really get yourself out there. So, of course, it really helps to do as much as you can on your own. At the same time, you need to find a balance for yourself in terms of where your energy is best directed. And I do find that some of the social media stuff and, you know, really, really constantly trying to be out there, be networking and making connections, that really takes away from my writing creative energy. So it's something I'm constantly working on in terms of where can I best invest my time? I think it's really important to find a writing community and engage with other writers. If you're someone like me, who's maybe not as comfortable with posting on social media all the time, it can be really useful and really helpful on a motivational level to just have that community and have other writers who are going through the same thing as you and you can support one another. And I think that already is really helpful in terms of finding ways to keep it fun and keep it engaging while also feeling like you're helping your your book get more exposure. So do you have a critique group that you work with of other writers? For me, the MFA that I did was really helpful. It created uh, now 10 years later, uh, still a really tight knit group of writer friends that I rely on a lot for initial feedback, for idea brainstorming, and really just that moral support more than anything. Uh, one person in particular that I I work with him back and forth bouncing ideas and we have Zoom calls 
ideally every couple of weeks and we'll spend maybe one hour looking at his manuscript, one hour looking at mine. And that's, I think, really helpful just to stay focused and have someone who knows your writing so well that they can really challenge you and help you stay on course if you feel like you're steering too far away from that emotional heart of your your novel that I was talking about earlier. If you haven't done an MFA program, that's absolutely no barrier to creating a writing community. I think every city has meetups, uh, writing groups that you can find through Facebook or through local writing schools, or just looking on Instagram or TikTok. There's so many opportunities out there to connect with other writers. And I can't stress enough how helpful that has been in terms of keeping me on track and keeping me motivated over the years. Is there advice that we didn't touch on that has sustained you in the, not so much in the publishing phase of this, but in the writing craft phase, things that we didn't talk about that you think are worth mentioning? I sort of touched on this a bit already, but I think the more I learn about writing craft and that's both in in teaching writing classes and really looking at my own work and that of other writing friends the more I see the value in spending a lot of time thinking about character and character motivation and how much that really drives plot and how that should shape everything around you from the way the setting is described in a novel to the way your conflict is developing so I, I would suggest that people really spend a lot of time thinking about that in terms of, yeah, what are my characters' positive traits? What are their flaws? And how is that affecting all of their interactions throughout the story? And I think that for me has really just been a really useful grounding point to come back to every time that I'm struggling a little bit with plot points to really come back to who is this character who's driving this story? How are they making mistakes? And what kind of obstacles are preventing them from learning from their mistakes. Yeah, just to finish up on that point, I wonder if you have, so it sounds like as you're doing these post-it notes in the program, you must have just tons and tons of of notes on character. I don't know if you use, do you use like images and things like that to visualize their houses or what they look like or anything like that? Because I, I love this building out of character suggestion. I go crazy on Pinterest and I also on Instagram, I am constantly, you know how you can save things to different boards on Instagram. I just started a new one yesterday for the new novel idea. And anytime, you know, if there's hashtags or something I'm following and something is in any way related to my novel research, I find images one of the most inspiring things to work from. So things, for example, with the Dutch orphan, there was a really big theme about fabric and fashion during the war. So I was going to museum exhibits, taking photos, uh, going on different websites, looking at sewing patterns from the 1940s, hairstyles, those kind of things. They're all going onto this Pinterest board or onto an Instagram board. And that for me is, and music also, similarly, I always curate Spotify playlists for each of my novels and sometimes each of the characters within the novel. I love that suggestion. Yeah. And we didn't even get to touch on how much music and art played throughout both of these novels, but that was a massive sub theme. Yeah. I love that idea of doing, doing these Pinterest boards and the Spotify playlists for books. That's wonderful. Ellen Keith, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It was really interesting to talk to you. And I just love talking about writing craft. I feel like I could go on forever about it. That was Ellen Keith. Her latest is The Dutch Orphan. She's also the author of the international bestselling book, The Dutch Wife. It's out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two hours in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great, great day.